in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, plural co-host, I should say, from the Bluegrass State, Ms. Lizzie Haynes. How are you doing? I am great. I It's been a long day, but I am so excited to talk about this movie. All right. And from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbardis is joining us. How are you doing, sir? I am busy, 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 but never too busy for the roundtable. Three busies, busy times, busy times, busy. Would you say you're busy cubed? Cubed? I certainly would. I would go so far as to say I am busy cubed right now. Okay. All right. Well, we don't want to make you busy to the fourth power because you're, you're at the appropriate amount of busy for today's episode. But before we get going, it's Halloween time. And what spooktacular movie do you love to rewatch at Halloween season? It's not necessarily your favorite, not necessarily the best, but the one you like to revisit the most. Lizzie. For me, it's Stephen King's It. Not the most recent version, but it is the made-for-TV version with Tim Curry. 1990, I believe. Mm -hmm. Probably the book was chilling, but I watched that when I was really young. I had to have been probably about 14 when I first saw it, and I just I got hooked. It's not the best of the best, but for me, it's just a comfort movie, and I love it. Dustin, how about you? What's your most rewatched Halloween classic? It's a spooktacular classic, but it's not a Halloween movie. It's just scary. I love The Ring, and we covered it on the show. I think that counts, I, yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. And if I want to feel spooktacular, I watch it. Uh, my, my preference for, I guess, more traditional, maybe slasher, scary movies is I actually really like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from 2003. Okay. I think it's really good. The Jessica Biel one? Yeah, 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 and Arlene Ermey is sheriff, and I, I don't feel like it's blasphemous to like something that hit when you were in high school. And the old one's good too, but I really like that one. So that's probably second place. Well, my go-to at this time of year is Halloween. We have covered it, and I really enjoy it. So I always love Michael Myers, and uh, the, there's nothing better than the original one. So it's one of our first episodes that we covered. So please go back and check that out. But uh, today we're going to get into some other new stuff. But before we get into that. Speaking of new, Lizzie, what's the newest movie that you saw? (laughs) The most recent movie. I have a habit when I cannot sleep. My traditional go-to is to turn on a show that I've watched a million times. But once I've watched it too many times, then I start switching to movies, which I have done. So I switched to movies that I've watched many times, so I know that I'll be able to fall asleep to it. The most recent one I turned on was 27 Dresses. (laughs) And it put me right to sleep. (laughs) I always always find it interesting. Like, is that a compliment? I think so in the fact that it feels comforting. I think you could definitely take it as an insult as in the fact that I wasn't awake enough or interested enough to watch it. But I've seen it enough times that I didn't need to. So in there is the compliment. All right. And Dustin, how about you? What movie did you watch most recently? 
Well, it is a spooky season, and so maybe third or fourth on my list of movies I'd like to revisit, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I have not actually done that one. The title is preposterous enough to steer me away, but yet make me curious enough to lure me in at the same time. So strange combination there. Am I missing out? I wouldn't say it's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I like it. And uh, I've, it's enough of a romp to where like, I'm not watching it because it's scary. I've got other scary movies to watch because they're scary. Yeah, I'm watching it because it's fun. And they are fun. And that's kind of how I, I like to approach a lot of stuff is, is that fun enough for me to rewatch? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. The last movie I saw, not Halloween themed here, stepping out of character with that. Uh, I watched uh, a pl The Place Beyond the Pines, which is a Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, Rose Byrne effort. So it's a little heavier, a little grittier. Uh, it's a little more Brian Fry, if you will. So uh, I'm prepared for things to get a little dark tonight. Okay. Okay. And with that, what movie are we covering today, Dustin? 1997's Cube. Oh, Canada. This is a Canadian movie. So it's a, from a Canadian independent movie production. It goes on to be a cult classic that we know and love today. It stars Nicole DeBauer, Nikki... Nikki Guadagni. David Hewlett, Andrew Miller, Julian Richings, Wayne Robson, Maurice Dean Wint. If you don't recognize those names, there's a reason for it. This is an independent film. It comes out in 1997. It kind of takes the world by storm slowly, so it gets to the United States in 1998. It is a Toronto International Film Festival movie, and its budget was only $350,000, so not a lot. And that is Canadian, so those are 350000 loonies. <laughs> so uh, it is. it grosses $500,000 in the United States. Uh, it's so that's more in the US alone, but it grosses $8.9 million globally. It does particularly well in France and in Europe, but um, it would be this film would go to become very successful worldwide, especially given the amount of money that went into it. So it doesn't really have a ranking on the year given its independent nature here, but I can tell you the number one movie from 1997 was Titanic. And Lizzie, wouldn't it be nice if someone who's a wonderful personality with lots of great movie insights had covered this movie? I know. Who'd have thunk? Uh, IMDb gives Cubed a 7.1. Rotten Tomatoes gives this movie a 63%. Not particularly high. The audience score likes it considerably better at 76%. So uh, at the 19th Genie Awards, a film received nominations and won the award for Best Canadian First Feature to the Toronto International Film Festival as well. So Best Canadian Feature. And then five Genie Award nominations. I am not familiar with the Genie Awards, but I, I, I like finding out about awards that I don't know on the show. It's always fun. And it's a jury award at the Brussels International Film Festival for Best Fantasy Film. I think the Genie so, Awards are kind of like the, the Tim Hortons to our 7-Eleven. <laughs> it's possible. Maybe that's like the Saturn Awards. I, I did not think I would be trying to find other Canadian puns or slips to be able to compare, uh, but I can't promise I won't do it again. It was followed by a sequel, Cube 2 Hypercube, and re-released in 2002. And a prequel, Cube Zero, was released in 2004. And I believe there's a Japanese remake that came out in 2021. So this is a concept that takes a hold, and we're going to see more of this. Lizzie, I'm going to start with you. Had you seen Cube before? I've never seen Cube. So when after seeing this, I went on TikTok because that's my favorite place to go to get a very quick movie review. You know, any, you can get it in under a minute. I love it. 
And it was there that I realized that this is a cult classic. This wasn't just like some obscure B movie. This was a movie that so many people love and so many people have a hot take on. So no, I had never seen this before. This was first time experience for me, first time experience for my husband, Aaron. And uh, we both really loved it. It I think I told this to our group chat that I feel like this movie crawled so that Saul could run. It's really gave me like big time Saul vibes and but without the disgusting gore. And a little so bit of disgusting gore. We have some disgusting gore. The first like yeah. five minutes, I was like, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> but after that, it was tolerable gore. I think you sent me a tolerable text in the first gore. couple of seconds of the movie and just said, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm in for here. And I said, hang in there, hang in yeah, there. I yeah. don't want to spoil it for you, but I mean You've, yeah. The opening yeah. scene was cool. I was like, I don't know. And, and I made sure to reassure you by texting back, Cube! <laughs> with exclamation <laughs> points. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Uh, so, Dustin, this is your dealer's choice. That's right. Had you seen Cube before? I'm guessing you might have. Yeah, I saw Cube in 1999, uh, and I would have been 12 years old. These are the kinds of movies that Dad introduced to me too early, <laughs> but I, God, I love him for it because you don't have like a way to prepare yourself for this at the time. This is pre-internet, y'all. So there's, and as Lizzie said, this is before Saw, which would be the next big stepping stone, you know, the, the next step for mankind in terms of this, we'll say, general style of horror movie. But it was something where there were definitely things that were lost to me as a preteen. But as far as the idea of it and it's sort of, it's not just the visceral gore, but the almost the, the helplessness to it that uh, it stuck with me for a while. And I, I'll take this moment to say this falls into the category of movies that I have seen and I present to the round table to say, Hey, I like it, but is it good? So I'm looking forward to tonight's episode. Oh, okay. I've noticed you've done this. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, you. You have a new yeah. brand or a different. Everybody does deal different things with dealers' choices. You know. I mean. So it's interesting the thought behind that. So, uh, what was it like returning to it? It's so exciting because I I do want to. I I don't hold twelve year old Dustin to high standards. Uh, he liked a lot of stupid stuff. Um, so I didn't know like is this something that was worth our time or not. And so returning to it, you know, there are things about, hey, I'm an adult now. And uh, what are adult things about this movie that matter? Is it, are the visuals still as striking? Are there things that, as I've brought up before, that, well, now that I'm paying closer attention, is this going to be a filmmaking decision that I feel like detracts from it? But no, I, I even though I, I knew what happens, uh, it's still a blast to reconnect, especially since this is a tight 90 minutes. Dustin does like the 90 minute, I don't know what you call that, uh, yes. delight or, you know, what, do you have a title for like when a movie is 90 minutes, it just, it hits you right. It's a tight 90 minutes. Yeah, I like a tight 90. I think that's close. All right. Well, I also had not seen this before. So you, you have successfully uh, hit two of us with new ones here and I had a lot of fun with this. I like science fiction and I might be... Um, leaning more into the mystery and the science fiction than the horror. It is all of these things at one time, obviously. It is fantasy, too. So I got to say, it's a creative blending of genres. And that alone has gotten me off to a good start here. And so 
I thought this was a lot of fun to study and I would have never caught into this one, Dustin. I don't think I saw this in the movie rental store. You know, sometimes mm. sometimes the cover sticks with yep. you, even though you can't see it. I wouldn't have been, I don't know, maybe I could have watched this one by the time I got to there. I, I, I was allowed to have R-rated movies, but it just did not hit my radar. And so um, I have no recollection memory and I've never heard anybody mention this. So you really hit me out of hey. like way in the outfield with this one. But you know what? I'm glad you did because I had fun with this one and I, I do think it holds up to today's audience. I think it might merit a remake and I'm curious to see the remake that, that they have made. I, Chad has seen every horror movie made three times over. He's a, he's a machine. And so he said that the remakes and sequels don't capture the magic of this one. So I'm not shocked, but I'm disappointed because I think this concept, as I said, we keep revisiting it. The concept's pretty good. And I do like Lizzie's comment of saying, this walk so Saul could run because I yeah. love the original Saul movie a lot. And you're right, Lizzie. I think this movie might have laid some ideas. Like the escape room trend certainly hadn't taken America by storm yet. So I like that. I like I like the whole not knowing how you got here, not knowing what's going on. Adding that layer of mystery of what's going on here. I, I appreciate so that kept this movie fun for me. There will be spoilers though that lie ahead. I don't think this is a movie you want spoiled for yourself. So if you haven't seen it, <laughs> get yourself a uh, a Tim Hortons donut and yeah, and watch this one, and then come back, and we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All Eighties Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. We're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Cube since 1997, or for those who have been stuck in a Cube since 1997, do you want to refresh people's memories? Quentin, Worth, Levin, Holloway, and Wren awaken in a cube-shaped room. There are six hatches centered in the sides of the room, which lead to other different cube-shaped rooms. None of them know why they are there or what led them to this predicament. Wren had been exploring other rooms and informs them that there are deadly traps that respond to different sensors in each room, meaning that if they should choose to try and escape, they must keep their wits about them. He had been using his boot to test out the motion sensors for the traps, but realizes too late that there are some traps that aren't based on motion at all, resulting in his face being burned away with acid, much to the terror of the other trapped members. Levin, a mathematics student, hypothesizes that the rooms with prime numbers in their hatches are trapped, that the only way to proceed is to factor the numbers to eventually reach the edge of this maze. As they continue to explore, they meet another trapped person, Kazan, who has a mental handicap that requires attention and care to keep him calm, but the five of them then continue to explore. The prime number hypothesis fails as Quentin is nearly chopped into sushi bits, but in his return to the previous room, 
Worth reveals that he was a contractor paid to design the outer shell of this maze, but that he knows nothing else about its design or its purpose. With this knowledge, Levin is able to calculate that there must be a way to reach the outer shell, and then to possibly escape. The numbers on the hatches indicate three-dimensional Cartesian coordinates, and by using those, they can proceed. After encountering a room with no other possible safe exits, they choose to traverse silently to avoid an audio sensor trap, which due to an unintentional outburst from Kazan, nearly results in Quentin's death again. This results in a violent outburst in which Holloway defends Kazan, and tensions are at their highest. They reach the end of the maze to see a bottomless void beneath them, where they devise a way to swing across using their clothes, and the second lightest member, Holloway, swings across. A shift within the cube results in Holloway nearly falling, being caught by Quentin, before he releases her to her death due to their previous argument and ongoing hostility. After a short rest, Quentin attempts to convince Levin to leave the cynical Worth and Kazan, resulting in a sexual advance. Heading off the sexual assault is Worth, who is physically defeated by Quentin and dropped into the room below. To their horror, the room beneath is the same room where Ren had perished earlier, and they determine that the rooms must shift around inside of the outer shell. A solution is found by Levin, but they're unable to do the math required to move safely until Kazan is revealed to be an autistic savant, who can safely lead them to the rooms that predictably will lead them out. As they reach the bridge room, Worth slams a hatch on the violent and now unpredictable Quentin to allow Kazan and Levin to escape. Worth catches up and the final three find the exit room. Worth refuses to leave as the world outside offers him nothing of value, and in their delay, Quentin catches up and kills Levin. Worth fights back while Kazan moves to escape. As Quentin pursues him, Worth traps him beneath the shifting rooms, and he is pinned then cut in half by the shift, leading Worth to succumb to his wounds next to the remains of Levin, while Kazan wanders outside into the light. Wow. Thorough and well done. Now, Lizzie, I always mention this. Is this, is this the cozy horror for you? Is this, is this hitting you in your happy place? This is not cozy horror. Not cozy I horror? would not define this as, co- as cozy horror. To me, I think there has to be a little bit more character development for me to define it as cozy horror, because I think the... My my coined cozy horror genre, I I think that there's got to be a lot of meat there in order for me to find it cozy, and then all of the horror is just kind of an added bonus. So there was not a whole lot of that in this movie. <laughs> so was it too abstract for you not, not knowing what's going on and why they're here? I think the uh, – yes. I think that now, to be fair, that just because it doesn't fall into my cozy horror horror category does not mean that I disliked it. I did like the movie, but I, I think in terms of if this is a comfort movie and a comfort watch, uh, I wouldn't identify it as that because there's so many questions. And I feel like this movie feels more almost artful in a way where it's really trying to peg so many different questions of who are these people? Why did they put them there? They clearly chose them very carefully because they each have a very different skill set, at least Levin and Kazan Worth. You know, they all each have their own role to play. So obviously they were purposely put in there knowing that if they worked together, they'd be able to get out. Um, but, but why, you know, there's just so many questions. It's, it's funny so. when you said the, the, the character development, because th- they really, there's very little increase in connection between these people. Yes. At most, they get at each other's throats and they, even though they're stuck together, they are 
they are whittling away at any connections that they had, they begin to argue. Uh, you do have maybe one or two moments of connection, particularly with Levin and Worth. Or sorry, and then uh, before that, you get a little bit between Worth and Holloway as they actually share their first names to each other. But aside from that, they're mostly going at it. And so I would I would agree with you that that doesn't really make you feel comfortable. Uh, it instead it accomplishes the mission of like oh this is uncomfortable and it would be as uncomfortable or worse for any group of people to be in this situation. Agreed. Yeah. Perfectly said. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think Lizzie, you touched on something. There are a lot of unanswered questions even at the end of the film here, Dustin. Yes. I mean, we don't know really who made the cube. Really, when it's all said and done. We don't know why it was made. We don't know, are they in space or where are they? Like, where's the cube located? And we have some ideas, as Lizzie alluded to, and maybe I didn't watch it enough times, but some people have a great deal of purpose. And obviously, like she mentioned Kazan and uh, Levin, but other people may not have the same degree of purpose who are there. Obviously, Holloway or uh, Quentin. You know, why, you know, why is an angry policeman so important to their mission? You know, why is Holloway, you know, a government conspiracy, you know, mm -hmm. a, a doctor like there's, she doesn't perform medical assistance to anybody and a prisoner who's, a, who, you know, the Wren, which we lose him early, but I mean, so he's an escape artist. So that seems like it would fit, but I mean, we lose him so early, so maybe we don't see his purpose, but the purpose is that someone needs to understand that the traps are real and no one's immune. I'm not saying that his purpose was to die, but right. even that serves something. I mean, I mean the, be the, the beings who made the Cuban selected the people. Right. We don't ever get all these answers. And Correct. Um, is it satisfying for, for you guys is one of those things. I mean, I'm okay with it because the mystery element kind of alludes to and sets up that you could do this again. You know, I think I think in the horror movies love to leave the door open and uh, for more. And uh, it's just what you do when you're a horror movie. And so in horror line sequence, I mean, I think uh, we had Hellraiser. We covered Hellraiser. Not all the questions are answered in Hellraiser. And we go back and you go into the Hellraiser world and Hellraiser 2, which we have not covered yet. But uh, there's an ambitious movie there, whether execution or not was totally there or not. I don't I cannot speak to that. But. I actually am intrigued at how many doors they left unopened, and I am intrigued to see Cube Two Hypercube. Even though Chad has strongly cautioned me and said uh, it's it's the you, you know I mean it exists. I, I can't I can't tell you you need to see this. Well, I'm also generally anti sequel. Uh, this stands alone. I saw I think four or five of the Saw franchise sequels. Um, to my detriment, watching those probably solidified my position of like, don't watch sequels. If, if it nailed it the first time, it nailed it. I They're think diminishing the, returns in that series for sure. Certainly. And I think the only sequel I actually really put on a pedestal is Terminator 2. Star Wars? That, that, that being said, uh, I mean, uh, that's difficult. <laughs> we don't have two and a half hours tonight, Russell. Um, the, the questions not being answered are, I think, an important point. And the conversation had in the movie about who did this, why did they do this? There was a, a, a moment just five minutes ago when Lizzie said, obviously all these people were put here on purpose. I don't know if it's really meant to be obvious. It works this time. And there is someone who can figure out. There are things that we do figure out. 
we, we figure out the prime numbers and then until it, they stop working and then we find out that it's actually the uh, prime factors. It's a different version of prime. Uh, Cartesian coordinates. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. Cartesian, I've only ever thought as being uh, two-dimensional. Um, the four quadrants you learned in pre-calculus or algebra uh, with the X and Y. So when they brought up Cartesian coordinates in this, I thought like, oh, X, Y, and Z. Well, they figure that out. It's cool to watch this group who don't really get along figure some stuff out. And that is, it shows just how valuable Levin is in this particular group. Um, and then very late, we are shown just how valuable Kazan is uh, with the, I think it may have been over time, especially we're looking at within the last 30 years, the autistic savant. Has that well been dipped into too many times? Potentially. But this so. would be the first time that I saw it. And so while I, the, the question's being unanswered as to, we don't know who did this. And that's good for us to have that question unanswered. We definitely don't know why, but the hypothesized answers from the characters themselves are enough for me to be satisfied, which is, hey, it's being used because it was made. And if it's not being used, then somebody has to admit that it was a waste of time and money. Um, I was driving south of San Marcos, where I am, and I had heard something that, oh yeah, this highway in Texas has been under construction since 1978. It's like, it's going to continue to be under construction forever. And it's just sort of, I think what was worth who brought it up, like, yeah, this is just a, a, an infinite public works project. Um, and why they were put in there or why them in particular, they don't know. I don't think that fits into what we were calling like comfort horror or cozy horror, but I'm comfortable with the uncertainty of it. And I generally aim for, I'd rather you leave it uncertain than to try to give me answers in a brief amount of time. I, I think just leave it be. That's how I like it. Lizzie, what about you? Do you want like aliens to be behind this or a dark government entity? I mean, I like answers. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I like I really like answers. First of all, talking about the math things, it's really, really important to note that I the second that I discovered that they were judging if the room was booby trapped based on if it was a prime number or not. My so my husband's a math minor. I immediately looked over at him and was like, I'm so screwed. Like if this were me, like I'm done. Like just melt my face off. It's over for me. <laughs> and like one hundred percent. But I I like answers. I think why I love the first Saul movie is because you have a lot of the same idea of like, you know, you wake up in a room, you have no idea how you got there and you know, you're now dealing with this obstacle of how, figuring out how to get out. And as that's happening, you're kind of almost working backwards of realizing how these people's stories were weaved together to create the moment that's happening right now. And in the second movie, I've seen several of them. Once they started to get, like, they started to become just like disgusting. It was like went past gory and just went to like just full blown gross. There is a That's term that not everyone learn. loves, which is torture porn. And and uh, yes. and it also yeah. the acting gets worse too. By the way, yes, one hundred percent. The second one was tolerable. I think once you got past that, and every now and again they do like a you know like a big twist and you know all but all of this to say is that I do enjoy being able to understand why something is happening. I can appreciate when things are unanswered. 
the uh, ambiguity of what's going on actually drove me throughout the movie, even to late into the movie. I, it was rewarding to not know. I have to admit, when you blow my mind like Saul does, like there's there's a resolution that delivers. It's not a it, like like Dustin said. I don't want to. I don't want to be disappointed with my like. It's like yeah. It's like whoop. Yeah. It was just a dream or like you know like. <laughs> or, or oh my gosh! Yeah, that's the word. Exactly. Yeah. So if you if you disappoint, then yes, it, it is better to not know. However, if you blow my mind, like you know, Usual Suspects or The Prestige or you know The Soul or Memento or whatever, I mean, then I leave going yeah. like wow. <laughs> so yeah. I, yes. Cube didn't wow me in that regard, but I, I have to say I was I I wanted to know more, and that kept me on the edge of my seat. I will say, I think they fumbled the ending for me. That they carried me through the whole movie, but I did not love the surviving only Kazan living through here. Unfortunately, I can't help but get over the fact that he's going to walk out. I don't know if he's in Antarctica. I don't know where he is. He needs help to get to somewhere. And now he's going to likely starve to death walking through some field in Greenland or wherever he is. And, <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there going like, we need somebody intelligent enough to get back to civilization. So poor Kazan doesn't <laughs> die of starvation. This bothers me. I mean, I'm realizing I'm reading beyond the end of the movie, but the last, the last uh, gasp attack felt a little bit cheap from Quentin being like, I was lying on the floor. My neck looks snap and blood is running out of my ears and mouth and eyes or whatever. You know, I'm exaggerating slightly. He looks dead. He looks really dead or certainly yeah. crippled or whatever. Like he's not coming back. And then he does like he's some superhuman. And I just got done saying I like Michael Myers, but Quentin is not Michael Myers. There's nothing no. Michael Myers about you. You no do Michael not have Myers. a janitor suit. You do not have a funny mask and you do not have a knife, like just always at your side. So you're not Michael Myers. Don't act like you are. And so him coming back at the end felt a little bit cheap and like cheap horror in a bad way, not not good horror. And then out of that, you know, if Worth had found purpose to sacrifice himself so that Eleven could live. That would have been nice. And Kazan and like Worth would have been like, at least I got you out and I had bonded with you and I found a purpose so that you can live. So live for the both of us. Like that'd be a good line to finish on. So I think that's a great line. So, I mean, there's... um. I, I I don't know. There's just so many combinations and permutations. I did not like the surviving, like the last survivor out of the resolution to me fumbled. It. Like I said, you carried me through the whole in, uh, football field for, and I just, I fumbled it at the end. And um, having said that, that normally sounds like a massive complaint. I still found this interesting. I wanted a sequel. Like the concept work for me worked very well. The concept's super, super strong. I do agree with you 100%. The one thing that I kept thinking is he's going to walk out and be like, where are my gummy bears? Like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't like, get his gummies. Gum he drops. 17 yeah. bags. Like, yeah, like, I, I, you owe me a lot of gummy. I mean, because that's what I would be, <laughs> be like, okay, <laughs> like, where? Where we've survived, like where where is my gum? Where are my gummy bears? I um, no, I totally agree. I love the idea that Kazan survived because you know he's the only one that kind of didn't go negative. Everybody kind of at some point went on each other's throat, and um, you know he kind of represented innocence in a way. And I think that um, so I, I love his survival, but I I really really wanted Levin to survive as well. I think that she also felt like a anchor for the group, and she you know sitting there trying to. You know, when Worth is like, there's nothing out here except for stupidity. And she's like, I can live with that. You know, like, let's let's do this. Let's do it right. together. It was all and, primed for what I, th- and I'll, I'll join and say what all three of us want. I, I don't hold a cube in its form 
as the way it should have been or like the way it's best. Um, I'm with you guys. I, I, I think I would have been more satisfied with, I would say I, I would have preferred to have Levin and Worth and Kazan make it. Um, I don't think that the Quentin coming back part was what I would identify as what was bad. Um, what we have here is, I suppose, what we have is some kind of reflection of the real world as a choice by the director, by the filmmakers, is that we, we have to have some similes for um, the things that you don't know. You are just a person in the world, a person who probably doesn't matter to the way anything happens, a really cynical approach. You would call this Worth's approach. That, Like, dude, I, I, I work in an office building doing office building things. And for anybody that is more than that, like our cop, Who's like I'm? I'm trying to be a, a leader. I'm trying to be. We have to work together. Um, and then we find out that uh, in in the end, he is the one who, in society, we would hold up high, has the worst qualities of all of them. Uh, I think there is a message that, like, hey, mm -hmm. none none of you here. Uh, do, do any of you deserve? <laughs> I don't want to call it heaven. Do any of you deserve uh, like getting out of the muck with everyone else? Not really. Uh, and I don't think I watch movies to be taught lessons on that scale frequently. When I see them, I think, okay, okay, I'm with it. Or and there's some movies with a lot of questions like Mulholland Drive, where I'm just sort of like, ooh, I don't know, but I like. And so there's times where if I'm looking at it, I'm going, all right, am I supposed to believe or am I supposed to think that this is, well... No one was ever destined to get out alive. There is no happy ending here. Can I accept that? Well, it's easier to accept with uh, Saw, for instance. But sometimes you, you just must accept that if that was the goal of the filmmaker, that we were destined, we were doomed to never be satisfied. That's very true. I think the, for me, the argument that they were placed based on their skill set was the fact that they nobody had any jewelry on but Levin had her glasses and Quentin pointed that out and he was like oh no no like she has glasses it must be for a reason and so I almost kind of think it's an interesting theory to think about it as like rats in a maze almost of like what if we take really capable people, people that are all really able, like if anybody's going to be able to escape this, let us pick those people and let's put them together and see if this is even possible. It's almost just like they're playing with people and just to see what happened. That's kind of what Aaron and I theorized because I can't think of any other reason if there was something that had to do with anyone's moral compass, I think that would have been something that they drove home more. But because they didn't, I think this was just like a prison experiment in a sense of like, let's just put everybody together and see if they can make it out. I got the gist this wasn't the first time it had been done. I got the gist that this Probably was not. trial number yeah. 72 or whatever. Oh, you know? yeah. So I, I I don't think that this was the first time the cube had run, if you will. I know they never can't outright said that. There was nothing that clearly said that. I mean, you know, I think that would have been a nice touch had worth been like, I drew this 12 years ago. And, that would have uh, been interesting, yeah. You know, this, that would have been, you know, yeah. how many people have I killed? 
you know, he's walking around with a strange amount of guilt. You know, I mean, he has information that is really valuable to everybody that they have a cube. He knows dimensions. I mean, he, he's actually pretty critical to them navigating the cube. And so, uh, you know, he unleashes his information and he could die without with having served his purpose. But his, his information is pretty essential to Levin being able to navigate and break down the cube. So um, his nihilistic attitude was uh, honestly a little bit um, if, if you go back and rewatch this, I suspect that could that could wear wear on you in the first third of the movie because there is some degree of I don't necessarily we <laughs> it's hard to like Quentin once we've learned how terrible he will go on to become. But I really like that turn of the movie. Initially, Quentin seems like the go getter who's like, OK, everybody, we need to talk about this. We need we need a leader. And like he's he's kind of self-proclaimed himself. Quentin has some admirable traits initially, but mm-hmm. that power, I think there's some statement about that in the writing of like you know, the authoritarian nature of I have power and he becomes a bully and he starts to push people around. He doesn't listen to anybody in his group. He's a, he's actually a really bad leader. So he at some point gets control, but once he's has it, he's immediately drunk with control. If you've seen the television series Under the Dome, you know, we have a we have a like a politician mayor who you know, once the dome goes up and everybody's stuck in an entrapped environment, he becomes very ugly in order to maintain himself in power. And my head went to that character and that. So the Bruce Willis guy. Yeah. 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 Dean. I can't remember his name. Dean something. <laughs> Dean uh, so, Norris. Dean, Dean Norris. Yes. The, the Dean Norris. That's character. Dean Norris. Yeah. yeah. Dean Norris and under the dome. So, um, good, bad guy, by the way. Um, I, by the way, I think he would make a great Levin character. Um, sorry, uh, Quentin character in this one. But, there's um, another chance here that there's another message, and uh, I, we, I, I won't go too far down this road, but uh, it, the decision for any filmmaker to present the hero cop as anything but. Uh, no, that, that's cl- what I'm saying. Clear, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, absolutely. And uh, be, because of that, uh, now he, I think that our actor went. Uh, does a does a great job with that role, Maurice Dean Wint, sort of pursuing this leadership, and I think that's important. There's a line that Worth mentions before he starts describing his role as a contractor in designing the outer shell of the cube. He says, "I'm the poison." Now, that could mean I'm part of this process that hurts the world because I'm just like everyone else looking for a fat paycheck, doesn't matter what you ask me to do, I'm just going to do it and be fine, put my head down and do it. He's an architect, and I'm not going to lie, if you pay me <laughs> handsomely to design a high-budget, interesting, complicated problem, I, I'm I'm into this job. So, I mean, I'm guilty so, of it as well. So. And you're, you're into the job, and your name is hidden away as the people responsible for whatever atrocity is built using whatever piece of the puzzle one of 200 contractors used for this particular job. But it's not, I, I was waiting or I was wanting this watch to be, he says, I'm the poison. And I wonder, we have a total of seven people in this movie, all that we mentioned before. And then, or is it seven or six? But there's one who's essentially uh, Julian not Julian Richings in it at is all. like in it for a couple of seconds. The bald Alderson. dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so seven, yeah, because uh, Ren goes real fast. So it's mostly five. Ren goes real fast. He was six, and Alderson is seven. We have no idea what his role would have been at all, at all. Uh, he doesn't even have any lines. So it makes me think, like, is there supposed to be a, like, all right, I'm the poison. 
you're the hero, you're the math wizard, you're the caretaker. Because Holloway does champion that, like, Keeping uh, Kazan Qu- needs to be taken care of. We're, we are in this together. We can't just leave him behind. Levin and Worth never supported leaving him behind. That doesn't mean that she wasn't the one who was caring for him the most. Okay. No, you're bringing uh, value to the character. I mean, I think she was interesting from suspecting the government is at hand, but you're right. Maybe she, maybe she most initially made sure was looking out for everybody to go through this together in a more caring fashion. So that's fair. And so there's the idea that, uh, you know, I have people that I know who love conspiracy theories and they, they like to think that things can be explained by it and that having that answer that could explain something that is generally poor for the public or uh, bad for progress. I like how Worth was so willing to say, like, whether you're right or not, nobody really knows. Uh, Whoever actually has the answer was fired or bought out or sold their idea. The nihilism of the, there is no purpose. We are just here. That is that same feeling. I was like, where I don't have any answers. And the answer is that there aren't any. That's, that's satisfying to me. But I'm, I'm not saying that because I was the one that introduced this movie. Uh, it was only on this rewatch that I got that full feeling. I was like, oh, yeah, this is, um, it's meant to feel a bit hopeless. And we have hope only given to us through Levin's math. M- math. Yeah. And, that, and, and there's just a little bit, but when you have it in a movie full of despair and hunger and desperation, time's running out, that getting those little glimmers of hope are special to this movie. All the characters are named after prisons. I thought that was, a, there's no deep meaning but behind this necessarily. They just thought it was a fun writing thing. But uh, Levin and Worth combined to make Leavenworth, which is a federal prison. Renz, the French guy who's the escape artist, is there's a center penitentiary. Uh, it's a French prison, uh, center penitentiary, Renz. So um, then there's the uh, Quentin, is uh, San Quentin State Prison in California. Mm-hmm. Holloway is Her Majesty's Prison Holloway in England, which is a women's prison. So she's a female character. And Kazan, autistic. Uh, in, 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 this is, in Russia, there's a prison for the mentally ill, Kazan, oh, Kazan as well. Yeah. So it's interesting, all these characters. Uh, there's no deeper meaning behind these things per se, but uh, this, is, this is a fun way to name your character. Well, would you guess that this project is meant to somehow imprison people that deserve to be imprisoned, but we look at our seven characters and what we decide is whether they have good morals or bad, that there wasn't anything that actually led to them deserving to be put no. in this situation. Lizzie, so, would you like yeah. it if they like if they all had like divulged something terrible that they did to earn themselves into the cube? Well, that's Saw. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean that's Which definitely like. Saw. But yeah. I have to be honest. When I find half the time when they announce like the things that they've done to get into Saw, I'm just like, ah, like I'm not trying to say that like. <laughs> I'm trying to say I'm not trying to say like it's bad. I'm not trying to give them a pass, but does that deserve them having to literally like raw? You ordered Girl Scout cookies and then said you didn't later, and then you didn't pay for them. Oh my gosh! Like yeah, I mean it's this idea of like I think one of them. I'm I'm probably completely making this up, but one of them was on par with like 
you know, like embezzling money from like the old little old lady that you work for, which like obviously is deplorable. That's absolutely disgusting. But like, does that mean that I think that justice is you putting a lock on your face for five <laughs> minutes? And if it doesn't, you, go, you can't figure out the combination or dig it out of this dead corpse is going to blow up. Like, I think that's just too extreme. And I hands uh, here so, soft on predatory embezzlers of the elderly. Like, you heard it here like, first. <laughs> You walked into Bed Bath and Beyond knowing the coupons were expired every time, <laughs> and now look at Bed Bath and Beyond more like Bed Bath and Bankrupt or Jigsaw. That's right. Just like oh my gosh, it's just so bad. So I I don't know if that would actually make me feel better. I I think it goes back to liking answers. It would just maybe make connect the dots as to who these people are. Another movie that does that is Identity. Some people uh, mm-hmm. I feel like that was like a don't give that away. But it's good. No, no, I won't. I won't. No spoilers. But there's, but it's this idea of a bunch of people that eventually, by realizing their backstory, you realize how they're connected. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, there's, there's definitely some of that there. I, I think for me, there are a lot of unanswered. Que- there's a lot of unanswered questions in this movie, but I can almost actually appreciate it from what Dustin has said. That you know, you when you think about Michael Myers, you know, your your favorite. Halloween movie, you know, it would be awesome to understand why he does what he does, but it almost makes it more frightening that we don't. And I think that the the hopelessness and that helplessness, even though I don't like it and it's unsettling to me, I think that's the point. And so I can rest easy having all of the things that I would do, but I... I think if I accept what is, it really just helps me enjoy it a lot more. So I, I think I'm okay with not having the backstory. I'm gonna, but having the glasses is important because it makes me realize that they were put there on purpose for a reason. Without giving too much away, this is a lower budget movie. Do we like the acting here? Does he? No. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. I'm glad you got to it right away. That's the correct answer for me too. I, 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 I mean, everybody was horrible. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I mean, everybody just overacted so bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we get to the superlatives, I, I actually built a. I built a. I, I built a little full recast. A full of like, yeah, I did a re. I did a full re-rostering. But. I look forward to hearing that. You know, there's not. There's not a lot of. I mean, these people didn't go on to have big careers. My hidden gems are two of them, of which I've I've seen in other movies, but they were also like obscure movies that didn't blow their careers up either. So I think, um, yeah, I think that this is probably their peak for them. Then there's a there's Nicole, a reason. Nicole DeBoer <laughs> goes on to do Star Trek stuff later. I'm not saying that this is fine work necessarily. I think David Hewlett's probably the most. Uh, yes, I the, would agree. The, the best at it. He was the one that they brought on board, um, meaning uh, the uh, director, uh, Vincenzo Natale, and uh, the writer, uh, I think it's um, Andre Bielik. They had they they made films in high school, like just Super 8 films and stuff like that. So this is just David Hewlett went to their high school. He was the thespian. So when they made their own movies and stuff like that, they were in their own movies initially. They weren't very good at acting. They realized this. And so they got the best actor in their high school, David Hewlett, and said, do you want to be in movies? And so they, you know, they, they were like a, like the movie Super 8. They're making their own homemade movies. So David had a connection with them. And I will say he was probably the best moment of this cast. I just, um, I felt like the budget hit here. And this is where I, this is the one place where I would say, aesthetically, this movie is actually pretty strong. 
I think the cube looks great, actually. Mm -hmm. I think 1997 mm -hmm. effects, we are they are doing everything right with the lighting, the effects, the, you know, I mean, they're very resourceful to do all this. And I'll talk more about this in the film creation. They get so many things right. I just wish they had a little more money. I feel like today you get you pick up a Netflix show, you get just something that people had made. The ability to get actors in non-mainstream productions is better. And I will admit, Toronto is not the Vancouver film scene necessarily that we have today. And 1997 is also, this is a different era for Canadian film production. There is a robust film production in Canada and Quebec, Toronto, and uh, Vancouver. You want people who can make movies? They have them now. 1997 is at the earlier part of the curve. This is the building up of what builds the film scene there in these places. And quite frankly, I, I think, you know, I'm not saying they're soap opera actors out here, but... Um, I would have almost gone with that. What? I don't know about that. Soap opera well, they're actors all, are... They're all known for TV. Are just, yeah, soap opera yeah. actors are just those like, I look really good. I'm mad. And I'm <laughs> going to have to say that I'm mad in the dialogue because my acting my, my acting falls short of that. You may look real mad I, and I, I am look mad really now. good when I'm angry. So like... <laughs> the big eyes, the big furrowed brow. Yeah. There are, there are lots of bug eyes, yes. lots and lots of really big eye movement. And it would just, I, it felt, uh, it felt cartoony. If I was watching like a high school production of this, I'd probably be super impressed, but, <laughs> but <laughs> we're being, I'm trying to back off with a soap opera actor. Now Lizzie's gone to high school drama club. No, yeah. no just being totally honest. It, this is not it for me. I mean the, but the fact that I still enjoyed it, the fact that I, the credits rolled and I felt like I genuinely had a good time while I was watching it. There were at least three, to four scenes where I was really like on the edge of my seat waiting to see what was going to happen next. To me, it speaks for the writing and the directing that, you know, the actors are actually like not that great. And I still am digging the movie. So, I mean, props. Dustin, I mean, it's a hard thing to overcome acting. Yeah. I, I don't think this is a tour de force from any of them. Uh, I was going to mention that they, they generally all had been on Canadian TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, Canadian TV has been a good launching point for some people to make it to Hollywood. But uh, I think there's a reason why we didn't really know many of their names, except for DeBoer um, and Hewlett. Uh, for sci-fi fans, they, they would know him more. But uh, that's, uh, that's another part of it, too, is I don't know. I think this is an interesting question. Do you think the movie uh, like improves at a mathematically like concurrent rate if you increase the budget and get great actors yes uh, it's it's hard to say it's hard to argue against it i think it's something that maybe i overlook for this movie julian richings the guy who gets cut up into cubes at the beginning bald dude he's the most well-known actor going into this movie and it's kind of an interesting trick they kind of did the drew barrymore and scream a trick of let's kill our best actor in 30 seconds with no speaking lines and so uh it also worked out because he has a very distinct face and his bald head and et cetera worked well to make a cast of when it came time to cut somebody up. So, yep. uh, you know, that's an interesting casting decision of like, I think we could cut you up into blocks really well. You're, you're perfect for the part. So, um, it's in one of my favorite, like obscure slasher movies, urban legend. He is the janitor in that movie, and he has three lines in the entire movie. He's just supposed to be the creepy janitor. 
And his only lines are, talk to Wexler. That's his only lines mm. in that entire movie. But he is so recognizable that the second that he came on the screen, I was like, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. It's a janitor. janitor. <laughs> he didn't get him <laughs> so for that long. He needed yeah, to be cleaned up on Isle Cube. Sure. <laughs> this movie was released in Canada, as I mentioned, but a Cineplex Odin Films was absorbed into Allianz Films. So this is why it gets its bigger run in, in France. So the the in its native Canada, the movie was given bad distribution, little marketing, and resulted in the movie being a box office flop. Initially. It's interesting later, however, that this became a hit in France. So by the production company getting it bought out by another one, it gave it a stronger life. And I don't know that the filmmakers were necessarily super compensated for that seemingly large turnover. Because again, it's you're turning $350,000 to Canadian into millions. That's, that's huge. Like that's an enormous profit. So awesome on that. Uh, even if... Um, I had never heard of the movie. It clearly was massively profitable. And I think the writing has some interesting stories behind it as well. In 1990, which is a long way before this, Natalie had made an idea to set the film entirely in hell. So the storyboard artist, um, you know, completed the first script for Cube, and they initially had more of a comedic, surreal, like cannibal tone uh, that involved, you know, more monsters in the Cube going around like this labyrinth. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the Natalie who, uh, and, uh, Bialik worked together. They stripped ideas down to be able to make it and make it affordable. I have to admit, would we, I thought it was an interesting idea finding out that you were in hell the whole time. Again, finding out that you each had something that put you here. It's a different movie. I think I like what we did here, but I also like this other idea from this early draft as well. It would really connect it to something that I had read for the first time in 2009, I believe. And I didn't look this up, but I, I know most of the details. It's a short story. It's only 12 or 14 pages long, written in 1962 by Harlan Ellison called I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream. Are you familiar, Russell? You're nodding in your head. It sounds familiar, but I've, I, there's no way I've actually read this, but I feel like I've heard of it. And uh, it, it's the concept in this movie where it's brought up that, oh, we're being played with or somebody's watching us. We are in this for observation and for control. Uh, that that could be you know traced back. It's crazy to think that for 1997, wow, I didn't think for 1997, 1962 would have been 35 years before. And right now we are looking at uh, to 2023 to 1997. That's only 26 years before. Um, just the, sorry, the, the time it's was math. We got to put you in the cube. <laughs> yeah. I'd be, I, I'd, I'd be okay in the cube. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I probably need to drop 20 pounds in order for me to monkey bar, uh, across concept of, oh, they're being in hell. I don't know if, if it makes it scarier or not scarier to be there because you deserve to be punished or that you don't. And I, and sometimes and it might be a simple way, but, uh, because none of these people are, we'll say sinners in that sense that none of them have a reason to be there uh, as a punishment that I guess makes it scarier. But the idea that like, all right, you just solved the cube and now you're in uh, the planes of fire. Uh, that, that It wouldn't be a much, much better of a feel good ending. I don't like Kazan's chances down there. I like that. They also in writing this, they recruited an actual mathematician named David Provencia who 
uh, was a math consultant, and he actually came up with the concept for them and said that the sarcophagus of inner cube rooms inside of an outer cube room, and he had all these, you know, 132 meters long. The inner cube consists of, you know, 17,576 cubical rooms minus a certain number of unknown rooms for space of movement in between them. Right. It's, it's really cool. They got somebody to build this set, to build this through. They thought through something that made sense. I'm not going to do the math and make sure there are 15,576 cubicle rooms or minus some that we don't know about. I mean, but the point is they put a lot of thought into that, into their set design and things like that. And I think that level of thought and care really pays dividends. I, I just, like I said, there's something that's working so well here and it's more than just escape the room. I think, I think they really thought through the details of, of, in a, of the situation and gave it a face enough of a masked face, if you will, through this ambiguous cube that was, it was good. You have an entity to be afraid of. It's not necessarily who's behind the cube. The cube itself is to be feared. And I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you brought up mask. Uh, Another movie that probably would improve, but I don't think it detracts because of the lack of famous actors or good acting, uh, would be Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. We didn't know anybody in that movie. That's good acting, though. It's extremely low budget, too. Well, this movie's made in just 20 days. That's astounding, especially in a time when you don't have the computer animation side of things at your disposal. Like they had to do it. They had to build sets. They built one giant cube. They changed the colors in them. I'm surprised they actually used gel panels instead of color coded. Like, I guess LED color correction, LED panels were too expensive at the times at this point, but they actually built gel panels and it was a time consuming process to change out the colors inside of them. But uh, so they shot all the red rooms you know, first, and they shot all the blue rooms, the white rooms, and the red rooms actually have all of the dialogue-heavy scenes. And so David Hewlett, the guy who plays Worth, recalled being really apprehensive. They had to do all their hard, heavy lifting early on. But once they got it behind him, it was like, uh, I, you know, <laughs> Worth has a line of like saying, well, I feel a lot better at one point. And <laughs> yeah. uh, he said, I really, that, there was a genuine nature of that. That was towards the end of his red room filming. So um, the room color, um, does not necessarily dictate trap or not, which is nice. I also like this. White rooms represent discovery for them, whether whether it be to themselves mm-hmm. or whether they find information about the cube. Well, that's cool. uh, uh, red room represents death or distress or strain in the group. And Conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Did you pick up on those things, Lizzie? Like I was looking, I was looking for those themes, and I couldn't pick up blue and greens. No, if I'm being totally honest, I was not paying attention to, I noticed that the room colors changed, of course, but I was so fixated on at the, in the beginning of the movie, you know, throwing the boot in and what's going to be in the booby trap. Who's, you know, I, I was really more focused on the actual meat of the story that to me, I, I noticed rooms changing, but never actually put together any kind of patterns of them. The most tense scene, I believe, happens in a blue room, which is when they learn that they're at a dead end, and unless they're going to backtrack, which an uh, interesting design of the cube is that just the idea of backtracking sucks because of the way you have to climb through the hatches. So do you think blue is defeat and like despair? Well, I don't... I. I didn't say that. <laughs> what I, what I, I put words in your mouth? <laughs> do you like the words that I put in your mouth? <laughs> no. No, that... <laughs> The, the the blue room that they go into is the audio trap room where they are silent for 
something like a full five minutes. And that is a level of on the edge tense when you know that at any moment Kazan could have some kind of outburst. Remember, he gets his pant mm-hmm. leg trapped on the hinge. And they all are capable of being silent as they monkey bar across. It's, it, it was my early candidate, not early candidate. It was my candidate for this might be my biggest thrill of the year uh, for our uh, end of year superlatives because Ooh, I, was ho- I was holding my breath because, uh, with all of them trying to get through that blue audio trapped room. Well, to be honest with you, Kazan, uh, I might have had more compassion to put up with Kazan's uh, madness as opposed to what, what Quentin is becoming. At some point, I probably would have said, I got to get away from this dude. I'm going to take my chances on my own. You know, I guess if you don't have the math ability, it's hard to truly go off on your own like the Ren did. But at some point, Quentin becomes visibly dangerous. He drops Holloway and everybody kind of knows it. And that's a rough spot. Like that's a turning point for the movie of, I kind of want to be away from this guy. And I don't know how we're going to do that. So uh, Lizzie, what about you? Like, do you feel like uh, other than the acting, are there signs of cheapness for you? Like this movie is shot with a handheld camera. This movie is made in 20 days and for not much money. It doesn't look like. it. No, I mean, honestly, that kind of stuff really just doesn't bother me. I think I've, there's been, certainly have been movies that I've watched that you can tell that it's not necessarily guerrilla style, but somewhere kind of adjacent to that. And it, I, I think if the story is solid and it's there, then that just really, I can look past it and it doesn't bother me. I think for this, it feels very 90s, even in the way that it's shot and and just the entire vibe of the movie. So I think in that aspect, I just gave it a little bit of grace. And the acting was tough in the beginning, <laughs> but I think the story stands on itself so much that you eventually just take everything that they do with a grain of salt and you can just enjoy it. I think... Uh- Julian Richings, Alderson, when they cut him up, I felt like they used too much light in that room. I think I think if they had just made it a little bit darker, that yeah. that would be a nice touch um, so that you don't have to apply so much definition there. It's also easier to cover up your effects when with darkness. That was half the reason why I wasn't so grossed out. <laughs> I Sorry, didn't think the effects were bad. No, no, we are, you know, we can see anything now, but you know, there of that time, there are movies. I think you mentioned it earlier in the show that there are movies where it's like, eesh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to look back at those. We covered uh, a deep rising last year and some of the CGI about that. I'm like, Oh, other comparable movies at the time did that so much better. But uh, there wasn't too much in this that I felt like, Oh, that, that should have been done uh, or th- that, that was done in a state that it was poor uh, the the scene where our uh, where Richings is uh, cut into cubes, uh, they at least did the, some uh, camera work to give us angles that are no that never used again in the movie. Like uh, from the side of his head, uh, very close up on his. We the movie opens with a close up on his eyeball, um, and you've also got the lines of blood that come across before he falls into his cubes. Um, I thought it was. If it wasn't a technological marvel, it w- it did enough for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just gotta point out all the detailing on the cubes. They're not. It, it's the same room repeated over and over again. You know, the 
the handles on the hatches are just industrial die holders that you can get for cutting threads on rods, and they're just available at hardware shops. Set design here is awesome. I just got to say, like, I mean, like, there's no budget here, and they made one really good cube room, and they used it, shot it over and over again. So um, I got to say the resourcefulness, the writing and the resourcefulness is really solid on this one. And in some ways, we've talked about how it's lacking in the acting. I think it's above average for its budget in several other ways. Great. I'm going to have to pick a new hidden gem because that was the thing I was I was willing to say was uh, th- that they built one and a half rooms and they made a whole movie out of it. That's yeah. special. They're good rooms. Super cool. <laughs> they, if, you, if you're only going to build one, you got to do a good job of it. And they, they did a great job they of it. They did a great job with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the booby traps actually look pretty good too, by the way. You know, the, the hot wires, like the twisting wires that come around. I mean, I, I, I think this movie also, as a director, I was worried we were going to get into a gore fest, torture porn, et cetera. I'm glad, to Lizzie's point, they grab your attention early. They captivate you. If you're a TV audience, you're going to sit down and watch this because they've done something big to start off with. This is a reason why Bond movies start off with the biggest stunt is usually before the credits ever roll in the cold opening. It, you know, there, there's, there's the demand to hook a modern audience quick. Um, in today's times and by the 90s it's firmly established and this movie definitely does that i'm glad we didn't just final destination everybody with the like i didn't i'm glad we didn't Agreed. blow everybody up into bloody smithereens or you know and stuff like that so i'm glad it didn't go that direction nobody like exploded blood all over the room and stuff like that and got it all over everybody's face i mean it didn't it, it wasn't as gory as i thought we were getting in for is what all i'm saying the effect of ren's face melting because there's 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 three different stages of that's it. true lizzie did uh, that one Nate, get you cringing but watch it yeah okay so okay. <laughs> i looked away i looked at i saw like the empty bowl that was his face <laughs> or his head afterwards i saw that like i heard the the gasps but the second that he popped in because you know he had just given like such a awesome little speech and you know he really pepped everybody up but then he he got too cocky and when he got into that room i just knew it was going to happen the music was setting it up teeing it up and the second that those little like like things came in i just Mm -hmm. immediately covered my eyes there's two things about that moment that i think really linger and matter well okay there's one thing that lingers and matters and one thing that i thought was special um it's in canada so you've got a lot of french-speaking people and his name is ren it's french uh and (laughs) <laughs> the last thing he says is mierda, which we know what that means. Um, but even though he hadn't said anything else in French the whole movie, might as well give him a little French cuss word right before he dies. And then um, the second thing that is lingering is the shot of him going into the room before the traps get him is reu- not reused. That exact style of shot is reused for anybody entering a room 10 more times in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. And because it's already been established to you that this might be the shot where someone gets caught by a trap you're kind of always expecting it Mm -hmm. and that is another thing that keeps you unsettled which will kind of tire you out and and that's where you're you can take a sigh of relief like okay they did everything right and they were safe this time but then you're going to get that shot again when they come in through the top or up to the bottom and you just don't know I never thought about it that, that, but that's an awesome point. Like even when Quentin jump, like that, that kind of jump, and then it pans up on them just assessing the room. Yeah, 
you think like, oh, he's going to be good. She's going to be good. Is he going to be? Yes, he is. It's He's safe. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you hear uh, Levin go, wait, stop. And then so it's it, – you're absolutely right. It's They really tee it up for suspense. Mm-hmm. The music in this film, also pretty good. Low-budget production here. Uh, the the original name to Burble the Pine was written by David Torn, and it appears in several video games, including Resident Evil series. So uh, it's called Serenity on the video game side of things. But I like the music here. It's not John Carpenter good. It's not Tubular Bells from The Exorcist good, but it is above the level of production that we have here. Again, so uh, I find if you'd want to make a horror movie, getting the soundtrack right so important. So important. It does make me feel bad that there's not much of a hook that you could hum. You can't like hum the the hook of Cube. No. Uh, and but I, mean, I would I just named yeah. exceptional scores for horror movies. Like that those are <laughs> right. you're, you have a very difficult time measuring up to that. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know. You right. Know. Uh the, I would say there's only there were only a couple things that detracted and it was uh, there are two scenes where there are montages and they they aren't classic montages but they are very quick uh transitions to show that like time has passed and the music used during those is okay i only okay whereas the rest of it i felt like was it really fit the theme and the tone uh there would also be times when there was kind of a uh four corners distortion kind of it looks like late 90s fisheye lens love it there you go very much like I, and I said out loud to nobody in the room because I was alone. <laughs> I said out loud, this isn't a music video, dude. Because, <laughs> but then it passed and we got back to the, to the guts of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also love how the wardrobe, everybody's been stripped of their wardrobe, adds to the level of mystery of what's going on. They use it to try and lower themselves out of the cube. It looks perilous why they actually tried that is still beyond me i guess you're really desperate um but i i love the mystery of you know where do they get these fatigues from everybody has boots you know i mean it, there's mm-hmm. no you know are we in russia like i don't know where we are right now so i i like that um uh, i felt like it was not in space because of what they were handed pretty firmly so malicious government does seem you know more reasonable i feel like if you were in aliens you would have been given some metallic suit or you know medical scrubs <laughs> yeah. or you know some jumpsuit with a speed stripe down the side like moonraker outfits from the 70s or whatever don't ask me why i just feel like these are the stylish outfits aliens will give us if they're testing us but um these felt like earthly wardrobe items uh for me uh, i it probably would be easy for listeners or for us right now but like as far as the all right everyone's in a jumpsuit together the first thing i thought of was uh, squid game ah uh, yes and that's where i'm like awesome okay show. well hey this is this is 25 23 years before squid game and uh, you know other other things where you know you think about like maze runner or hunger games where everyone's wearing the exact same thing it's kind of whatever's functional uh there's probably dozens of examples before cube but cube was probably the first place i saw oh this is you're you don't have any clothing identity. You are just there. You don't know why. And just figure it out. I think it you takes a page options. from 1984, like the movie. Certainly, or, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Those people know how they got there, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there certainly was a mean government entity in that one. So, um, 
Uh, I would say Cube falls into the you know, the Ministry of Love, and I would describe it as double plus on good. <laughs> All right. Do you guys want to hand out some superlatives? Yes. Cube. Lizzie, who is your MVP? My MVP is Vincenzo Natale, the director. I think he did a really good job. I think that really, as we've discussed, the the success of this movie can't really be given to any of the actors for their stellar performances <laughs> since they weren't really there. But I think that a lot, I mean, when you think about what went into this movie, the fact that it was filmed in just one room and what had to go in, just the attention to detail and the story really making it come to life. I think you did a great job. Absolutely. Justin, how about you? I'm also going behind the camera with Derek Rogers, our cinematographer. There's only so many spaces within the room that you can film things from. And uh, every 10 minutes, there's something new that you're seeing as far as perspective. And that's hard when you've got just a cube to work with. Uh, It's almost as if when the moment that they get to the get outside of the cube and they have all the black void, you almost wonder, like, oh, finally, I get a different angle. (laughs) But I. I, I I really dug the uh, different angles in this in this movie this time. I um, I'm also going behind the camera, kind of a hybrid there. Of I'm going to, to go with Andre Bielik and Vincenzo Natale. They have this passion. They're friends in high school. They just made ghetto like you know super eight eight millimeter film movies together. They made their first film. They <laughs> They uh, shot their high school. They, they they got their teacher, and they made a film where they were put in detention. They shot up their their teacher, and they let them use the high school. And this is the '80s, so it's a very different time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, they they even laughed and said, "We would have definitely been sent to a psychologist today at this point had we made that <laughs> movie." But uh, thank you for the freedom yeah. to be able to write this and to go forward. And so it's their passion that did this. David Hewlett's their friend in high school, so. It's cool to see their friendship and talking about it. You can find some interviews of them online. And uh, I just think that kinship and that passion when you have no money, you're being resourceful. And it's well written to Lizzie's point. Andre Bielik writing it, Vincenzo Natale directing it. So um, there's a reason we were excited enough to talk about it for 90 minutes. And they're the main reasons. So supporting actor best supporting actor i'm this is this is a program where you must be nice to the actress lizzie right. so uh do it be nice i i went with uh, nicole DeBoer, who plays levin she i feel like she can if i had to pick i think she carries the movie in some point i think she was probably my actor that i was the least disappointed in in the very beginning when they discover her and she's shaking and she's like where am i i'm like wow Okay, so the like, do they put in like a Craigslist ad for these actors? Like, what is happening? But she really surprised me as the movie went on. It was almost, I it's as if it was shot in chronological order, and so eventually she just got there with her acting. I mean, towards the end, she she surprised me and got she improved. So, and I think as a character. You know, she's she is quite literally the one that is able to aid survival for as long as they all did. So, yeah. best supporting goes to her. I uh, I think it's interesting. She said uh, she said that she failed math class. So I think it's always a hard thing 
if you're bad at something to play like you're really good at something. My, my mind instantly goes to Denise Richards plays a physicist and in, in one of the Bond <laughs> Dr. movies. Dr. Christmas Jones. Yeah, correct. And and it is it is painfully aware that she is not, in fact, a physicist. So <laughs> um, uh, uh, dumb people playing smart people. It's always funny. Um, Dustin, how about you? Best supporting actor. David Hewlett as Worth. Yeah. I believe most instances where we get a kind of devil may care or nihilist cynical character my most of my experience with that would be like a teenage burnout and so what's kind of interesting to me is that this portrayal is like a teenage burnout grew up and just hated his life you're right and it's, that's and a it's good not point. a comedy yeah. yeah he's 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 angry bitter not like like by the time you get to worth's age you should be more of a yeah like apathetic like yeah. Bitter. he has the anger in him you're right that's a good yeah. well, that's a good it's like that's a all good right point. there's nothing out there for me to live for i well i guess i gotta i gotta find an excuse for missing work these last couple of days and have Andre a wrote that as a younger man for sure i think that's interesting that's a good that's a good point so seeing that type of cynical portrayal in a non-comedy uh it, it kind of makes you um, it makes you search for what other things are like it and i just don't think i have that many my best supporting, and I felt the need to go deeper into the cast in order to pick supporting, even though it's very egalitarian across the board here in terms of their hierarchy. I would say that Wayne Robson as Renz uh, was an interesting character. I wish we hadn't killed off quite so soon. He had a big personality and uh, cocky, yes, but I kind of wanted to see, I don't know, maybe if you had a higher budget movie, you could talk about all the prison breaks he did and have like cutbacks to all the things that he did to get out of prison break. Cause I find they prison would have breaks, to spend money on other sets. They didn't uh, have it. Oh, for sure. No, they didn't have <laughs> no money for that. I mean, I, I just felt, I don't know. The, the notion of no prison can hold me is always an interesting kind of idea for me. So I love escape from Alcatraz. I like Shawshank redemption. I like movies where there is a prison escape, the rock, et cetera. So I don't know why escaping from an actual prison, which this is on steroids, um, it works for me, so I like that. Hidden gem, Lizzie. Uh, so I went with Wayne Robson for my hidden gem. He, I already mentioned my first kind of hidden gem from the janitor from Urban Legend, but Wayne Robson is, <laughs> I was a very big Mary-Kate Mashley girl growing up, and he is in the movie Double Double Toil and Trouble. He is the grave digger. Have oh, we not movie. covered that yet, Dustin? <laughs> it's spooky season. <laughs> just wait until my next dealer's show. I'm just kidding. I would never do that to you. Oh, no. <laughs> Chad is on the mission to see every horror movie. That means this one, too. Mary-Kate and Ashley are literally like six or yeah, seven they're so, they're they're so, young. so so little but they're like their grandma has this like big elaborate house and she's very spooky and there's a grave digger in there and it's it's ray robson and he's just this like very erratic like everything scares him kind of man and this is the, that's the only thing i've ever seen him in so seeing him as ren was it was a treat for me to see he's I love that you Still remember trying, that. Fighting the good fight. <laughs> I love that you vividly remember that. That makes me happy. I think, so I think much, when Justin yes. and I did Coach Carter with Chad earlier this year, I had one of the characters who was just like, I remember him from like this special sports theater from Nickelodeon in like 1993. <laughs> yes. And like, I don't know why, it's just burned in my mind. So it makes me happy to know that there's another person out there who can make associations like that. So <laughs> yes. um, Dustin, how about you, Hidden Jim? 
My first hidden gem was that they only built one and a half sets, so I have to move on from that. My second hidden gem is that they mentioned Saskatoon, which is a city in Saskatchewan, but it sounds like a cartoon city that like Elmer Fudd would talk about. But it's real, and mm-hmm. it's important because it's a Canadian movie, so that's special. The third hidden gem is most of the time, movies don't reference other movies. So in the scene where I think it's Quentin saying, you know... That the man with the golden gun, Scaramanga, and he's got that thing on his island. Like, as part of the dialogue, he's referencing a movie. I think that's incredibly rare, except for a movie like Scream, where it's all about mo- other movies. I, yes. I, I, that was just something I noticed this time, that, like, nobody does this. I thought like it was it. interesting. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to go with, my hidden gem's going to be production design by Jasna Stefanovic. That would be the person who's responsible for making the design of the cube itself and all the work that goes into the set design on a budget. So great work there. Recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, Lizzie. So I want to recast Maurice Dean Went. He was my who played Quentin. He was my least favorite character and my least favorite actor. I think he just he overacted so much. It was really painful to watch. <laughs> it's the most demanding role because he goes through the most change. You have to go from becoming yes. seemingly stoic to, you know, authoritarian and in control to like you're losing it to like, now nah, you're nuts. <laughs> like, I mean, you have to do a lot. So yes. in fairness, you're putting your change actor into a good place. It kind of was like when Joey from Friends is trying to show like he's at a wedding and he's trying to show his, like, this director guy that his mom is on a date with that he has range. And he's like, look, I can be happy. And then I can be sad. And then I can be angry. It's like, it's just this very, like, dramatic. I'm old. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so hot. Oh, I'm cold. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's cold in here. What? It's just, I feel like that's really, really how that felt to me. Now, I wanted to honor the fact that it wasn't lost on me that Quentin was, you know, uh, with the exception of Quentin, everybody in the room, it's just like a bunch of of white people thrown in the room. And I feel like, especially in the 90s, just having representation, I feel like that was important. So I wanted to keep that in mind when replacing him. And I went with Danny Glover. I think that Mm. he, to me, so he, I guess a little nod, he was in the first Saw movie. So that was where my mind first went. But I think in terms of range, he can really go there. He's done such a great job at playing the good cop. He played one in Saw, but then he's also done such a tremendous job at being a seemingly throwaway character and then turning on its face and realizing that he is actually, in fact, the enemy. And I won't give away what movie that's from, because mm. if I reveal it, then that spoils it for you. Well, it's not so. Lethal Weapon. We watched that you one know, earlier this year. You know. so. I think I know. I think I know the one. Yeah. Well, Dustin, how about you? Recast. Well, I wanted to do something that was Canadian, and I didn't. At least I don't <laughs> think. Uh, but I love the cynical David Hewlett character. But if we are going to up our budget and get a good actor, I'd love Bradley Whitford to be that character. Where would we know Bradley Whitford from? Uh, he is the uh, main character of the West Wing. Okay. Um, and nice. he and he uh, is also the like evil brother in Billy Madison. Okay. Yeah. Eric. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, I, no, that, I think that, I think I think I think I think I think between two those two audiences, you've hit most of the people listening. So I think that that that, that does it. Oh my gosh. So my recast, I got a little overzealous, and I, like I said, I did a full seven recast, but I think Blizzy 100% nailed it. Maurice Dean went as Quentin is the most in need of recasting because of the amount of demand that's put onto it. That and because, as I mentioned, David Hewlett's the best that, that you have in there. So if you land those two roles, you're in a much better place. So recasting a Quentin would go a long way to improving this even with everybody else. So uh, if I were to do this movie again today with money, I would go for Nicole DeBoer as Levin. I would go, so we need a young mathematics student. I'm going with Eleanor Tomlinson from Old Dark and the Nerves, um, British actress. David Hewlett uh, Worth, I'm replacing with David Tennant as the regretful architect okay. of the cube. So if you've seen, uh, well, you obviously you know him from Doctor Who, but also um, uh, Broadchurch is, is definitely where I was thinking from this um, haunted kind of figure mm-hmm. who does this. Maurice Dean went as Quentin. I went with Adam Driver, who is a good actor and would be like physically formidable. Like if he snaps, like I wouldn't want to fight Adam Driver. He does angry well. And I think he's also good enough to undergo the change from being like, hey, you're our leader to, oh, no, I don't want to be around you. (laughs) So so that's an important one. Um, uh, Holloway, I went with Olivia Coleman, also from Broadchurch. Um, so yeah, I'm putting a lot of British people into this. I'm aware that that wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have good actors. Um, Kazan, I actually want to go with a younger actor for Kazan. I want to go to Azra Butterfield, who is, uh, I, he was an Ender's Game as a younger actor. Um, he, uh, I just feel like if you go to a younger character, it only adds to the sense of vulnerability, uh, to it. Like the notion that you want to protect this person. And, uh, you know, I think he's a good young actor as well. Uh, Wayne Robson as the Wrens. I went Pedro Pascal as the escape artist here. And, nice. and, uh, that would tug a lot of heartstrings when you lose him though. It really would. It would. But I mean, I, I just, uh, a good personality for that one. And then Julia Richings, the guy who's not going to get to speak, but you know, you just have to, I, I want John Cho in there. I don't know why I want, huh. I don't, I don't really want to cut John Cho up, but I just, I, I felt like I like him. So. Yeah. I want to, I want to get him in okay. here, even if he doesn't get to talk. So that's my, that's, that's my high budget recast. Nice. Um, best shot, Lizzie. My best shot is I had mentioned it a little bit earlier where, so Quentin does the, the jump into the new room as Dustin had mentioned, and he pulls up, you think at this point he's going to be safe. And then, uh, Levin, you know, yells at him. She's like, no, 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 wait, stop in front of you. And you realize that there's this big giant wire and then it pans right above where it almost looks like he's in like a cylinder of wires, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I just think that that shot was so neat. The fact that they were able to go from the focus on the wire to immediately that pan above and have the wires start to twist, it was a beautiful scene to look at, but also super, super thrilling. Cause in that moment you think he's going to end up in the same fate as, um, as the as intro. Right, yeah. 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 Dustin best shot. It's complete overacting, but it's the turn when Quentin drops Holloway. Uh, it's, it's actually, it could be so much better if it was anybody, but went, <laughs> as the actor but um 
he shows his athletic ability escaping that trap. Um, and then after they drop the rope, he dives through the thing to catch her. And even though they had just been fighting with each other, he dives, he puts his own life at risk to catch her. And you're thinking, oh, okay, are these guys really going to do it? And then it's his face goes cold and dead as he drops her. And you realize as the audience, oh, they don't know that he did it on purpose until later. Um, I, yes. thought, I thought it was, if only they had a good actor to do it, it would have been really, <laughs> really good. Yeah. How many times we've had to say that in this podcast? <laughs> Poor guys. Oh, uh, my best Toronto, shot... we love you. <laughs> <laughs> my best shot is going to be Levin and Worth looking into the daylight. We don't see the door opening. We don't see what's out there, but there's a white out outside light hitting their beaten down hungry faces because we didn't mention this whole time that they don't they don't get any food or water right. in this whole process either adding a clock of you only have so long before you need to get water like that's a pretty serious clock on you so um you know i think that they are physically worn down and that light hitting them is that's my image of the movie almost making it mm-hmm. um best scene lizzie my best scene, hands down, was when they're trying to escape the sound trap. It was just absolutely Ooh, thrilling. Yeah. I was freaking out. I mean, I was way. I tried really hard to convince myself, like, I am not going to look away. We're we're going to do this. But I was convinced that at some point that was going to go off, and it was like so. It was just a matter of when and who is going to do it, and then who's going to be in the room when it happens. And it was just, it was amazing. I felt like the whole, and then just the visual of watching everybody, you know, you go down the monkey bars and some are vertical, some are horizontal. So uh, some people are going down, other people are starting. So it was not only a super thrilling scene, but really stimulating as well. Mm. It is an exciting one. Making me question my own now. Dustin, how are you? What's your best scene? That I think is the most impactful scene uh, as something special to take away from the movie. Uh, mine for me is doubling down on the message of uh, worth explaining that none of them knew what they were doing. They just knew that they were getting paid. And it's the idea of this kind of global message about the uh, just the capitalist world or just the misery that we live in or that he particularly lives in. Um, it's not really a mesh of Holloway and Worth's. Uh, combined cynicism plus like conspiracy theory esque. It was just like nobody's at the wheel, man. It could be multinational corporation. I mean, uh, Russell, you said aliens. It doesn't matter. It's it's we're here. We're stuck. And uh, God, I love what you said earlier. Like this is probably run seventy two, or this is run one thousand seventy two. It's just hey, there's where's the hope really? And we see it again later when the door is open and he can't bring himself to stand up and walk through it. Uh, that I, I, It's become a lingering thing on the show that uh, Dustin likes suffering in movies. You get darker. You've gotten darker since we've begun this. You went from I like flawed characters to <laughs> I like pain. I like characters who are dealing with pain. I like characters who are in despair. And now Dustin <laughs> likes suffering. So just watch out, suffering. watch out, twenty twenty four. I don't know where Justin's going, but on this trajectory, Ooh. it's it's getting darker. So, 
a good call. Uh, my best, my best scene is your best shot, Dustin, where where they drop Holloway. Well, sorry, where Quentin drops Holloway. So it's a big turning point for how bad things are getting in this movie, and uh, yeah, psychologically it changes you as a viewer towards you know, you know, Quentin's getting out of control, but it really changes the dynamic and the urgency of everything that happens after that point. You're not racing against just food and water. You're not just racing against can you outsmart your way out of this cube. I'm now trying to separate myself from a madman mm -hmm. murderer who has on a power trip. And physically, he is the strongest one there. So unfortunately, might makes right in many situations where there's not a better law enforcement to uphold order. So unfortunately, he's the, <laughs> he's the bully. So I mean, yeah. and nowhere is it more evident than here. Best wardrobe or makeup moment. This is a tough one. <laughs> uh, Lizzie, can you find one? I just went with the Doc Martens. I felt Oops. like that was just super 90s and it, very on trend. Who knows today would be maybe like a croc. Ugh. You know, you never know. <laughs> I don't personally wear them. Prison. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Oh, man. So who, who knows what it would be? Definitely the Doc Martin was the, the standout wardrobe. Boots are mine as well. Uh, I, they were a survival tactic and a testing ground. Dustin, what about yes. you? The buttons. It's the oh. only way that they can survive. Is yes. sucking Suck on, on a button. Thanks to Ren. Yeah. Uh, and it also provides us a moment when Holloway jumps into a room where they think, oh, no, is there some type of air trap? Nope, she just accidentally choked on her button. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. So, yes. Uh, change one thing. Lizzie. Ooh, um, change one thing. I, I gotta be honest. I think I, I think I still want to know what's on the other side. I think, I think that that would be really satisfying. Even if we don't completely get an answer, I think being able to have the doors open and maybe it's just like a bunch of businessmen like standing there watching and you have no idea what they're, what's about to come out of their mouths, but you can at least understand like, okay, there's somebody on the other side. There's some type of purpose. They're meeting Kazan. They want to talk to him about his experience. And then it kind of cuts to black. Like I could really dig something like that. I like the idea of them stepping out and it all turns into color. And you found out the cube landed on a witch and you get some ruby slippers <laughs> and there's functions all around. They're singing. I mean, I don't know. This is an original idea I had that this is how I would like to move. Dustin, how about you? Change one we, thing. We mentioned it. Let them out. Is uh, I, I, Levin and Worth. I would have liked to see them make it. Uh, Kazan too. But I think you're more attached to Levin for sure. And then uh, if if there was some way to give Worth a reason for for making it, uh, if if there was some development, which Lizzie you started the show with, if there was some way for them to really increase connection and for him to care again, that mm -hmm. would have been really nice. We don't get that. Instead, we get despair. That and, was uh, that was mine as well. So just to yeah. be different, I'll say the acting. Anytime I, <laughs> on a whim, just decide, let's recast all of it. Because it's a small <laughs> cast. <laughs> I mean, either it's a fun exercise, like we did that in Clue as a group, and it was just fun to do because like, it, you could play the board game as many times as you want, and it's always going to be fun. But in this case, there's a problem. So I'm going to say, <laughs> yes. I, I will, I will for diff to be different, I will say the acting, but I'm with Dustin uh, as well. So best quote, Lizzie. 
So this is early on in the movie, of course, because it's coming from Ren, but he's trying to warn the characters about their, you know, they're starting to to question the the big questions of like how we got here, why did we get here, why are we all connected for some reason? Is this government conspiracy? All the different things. And Ren kind of stops them and just says, thinking like that's going to get you killed. You just got to take this one step at a time. And he ends it with, you got to save yourselves from yourselves. And I love that quote because it is so true. You know, everybody, we always hear like the follow your heart mantra, but the reality is, is like our hearts are so deceitful. Like we, our emotions will lead us to make knee jerk decisions that are not always the best for us. So it's, it is when you're talking about life and death survival, sometimes trusting your gut and just like going with your instincts in the moment isn't always the right decision. You know, sometimes it's better to just like take a beat, figure out, is this, you know, let's look at the different variables to right in front of us. So I, I appreciated that line. I think that could have uh, could have been used in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And Dustin, how about you? It was really well put. I liked all the context you provided with that. Uh, mine comes from Ren, essentially immediately after that, which is uh, only reason I dragged you this far is because I need your boots. If you don't smarten <laughs> up, I'm gone like that. And then he's gone. <laughs> oh, poor guy. Mierda. Um. I, I I like Levin doing the, uh, you know, what are you doing? You can't quit now. It's not your fault. And Worth just says, I have nothing to live for out there. And Levin says, what what is out there? And Worth says, boundless human stupidity. And I love it when Levin says, I can live with that. Yeah. So uh, in terms of line that stuck with me as just being funny, I like Quentin saying, uh, Quentin saying, for Christ's sakes, Worth, don't you have something to live for? Do you have a wife, a girlfriend or something? Worth <laughs> goes, nope. I've got a pretty fine pornography collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, I think it's interesting at the one hour mark, they say the, like the last line spoken before the film hits the one hour mark is when they say an hour as long as I say, and that happens right one hour. Oh, the that's movie. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Here we go. So, uh, now we've come full circle. Lizzie on a five star scale, half star intervals, half star being the worst and five stars being the best. What is your rating, Cube, from 1997? I give this a solid 3.5. I think that it's the story is, I think the story and the direction and honestly the execution of it, I think is awesome. Like it's a really awesome story. I think the things that I prefer to have in a story, like, you know, like we've talked about context and answers and things like that, I'm really okay with overlooking because I think the story is so solid and it's just such an interesting, just such an interesting film to watch. My reasoning for not giving it, uh, for docking it a star and a half is really honestly just because of acting. I just think it's just, it's just it's really bad. And it, for a first good minute of the movie was really distracting. I think I had to kind of get it push myself through, through it. Um, cause you know, it's just really, really easy when you're watching a movie just to watch it, to watch it with like a really critical lens. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have a super open mind and I had to, that took some effort on my part with the acting. You know, I think you said it got better as it went on because they shot it out of order. I don't think the actors actually got any better on. You got comfortable with it and made the adjustment. Like, have you ever remember like Probably the day, do. like where you had like different TV aspect ratios and you picked up a movie and it was widescreen on a full screen TV and you're like, 
what are those black bars that really bother me at the top and the bottom? I don't like that. And then at some point, 15 minutes in the movie, you're just absorbed in the movie. Presumably it's good. And you don't notice the bars for the entire rest of the movie. And it's possible the bad acting is like the black bars <laughs> on, those, right. on those screens for you. Right. So like you might have just been like, you're like, I think you're a wonderfully positive person, Lizzie, and you're not going to sit there and complain <laughs> about something internally in your own head for 90 minutes, even as tight as it may be. You're just sitting there, sit there like at 15 minutes, you're just like, you know what? I accept your shortcomings and I'll still love you for who you are. Let's see what else is going on here. (laughs) That's funny. Um, Dustin, how about you? What is your rating on a five-star scale? Me and Lizzie are a match here. I'm also at 3.5. I I can't say I grew up with the movie. I was just introduced to it early. But uh, aside from the revealing as to what Dustin likes out of movies now, uh, aside from that, I, I think the messaging... And the, we could say nihilism, the hopelessness and the pursuit to drive on. Uh, what do we want our characters to make connections? What do we get? They push each other apart. And we get a little glimpse of connection. And it's maybe it'd be nice to have more of that. And who survives? Well, no one. Because in this world, only the people in power that run the cube survive. You don't mean anything. Those kind of messages, I mean, I am kind of keyed in to lessons like that. And so it kind of fits into the things that I like. Does it mean it's a movie that I like would want to watch again and again? Not really. But I do like those kind of um, reminders of perspectives of like what matters and how much power you have. And uh, when you're the rat in the maze, you don't have much power at all. So it's, it's, I know that I don't fit in the same box all the time with everybody with things like Requiem for a Dream or Mulholland Drive of, hey, did anybody win? <laughs> but uh, this, is, this falls into that, uh, I think 3.5 is, is the appropriate number for me. I, I'm amazed. I think I'm landing there. I, I wrote three down on my outline, but I think in talking about it, this is a wildly, I have a hard time evaluating movies like this. I think the acting is like literally one and a half star movie level acting (laughs) and i think that the production level design and the resourcefulness and the filmmaking and the concept is above 3.5 so when it all averages out i do think that you guys have hit my level of 3.5 i do think this has rewatch value i I am particularly interested to see the level of craft that goes into the some of the nuances between the characters how they're named what each character's purpose is there i think what happens the room the colors that are going on the little touches there I think there's a level of detail that is in writing with this movie. I'm sure if you're a math person, I'm sure there's another because they got a real mathematician on board. I get the gist that this movie is made with love and craft and care, that probably there's a richness and rewatch value in the character study of these people put into this stressful situation, to say the least, uh, deadly situation. I think that that is all very interesting. So I would happily watch this again. And I think, I think Brian has mentioned you know, having a soft spot for flawed movies, I suspect this could, you know, I think there's enough here for me to probably come to like it more in time. And if you watch something enough times, you start to be forgiving with its shortcomings as you are with your friends or anybody that you may have. And, you know, like, I mean, there's certain things of just like, at some point, the bad acting doesn't even feel like it's bad to you. The movie would just make you happy in time. So I suspect that with enough rewatches in time, this could actually grow on me more, but I think 3.5 is my, right, my happy level. I'm with you both as well. So, I didn't think I would be, 
But in preparing for this show, I'm excited to look into this 2021 Japanese remake. Yeah, I don't like, yeah. don't, you know, I'm, I'm curious myself. I wish I had had more time. I wanted to watch Cube 2 and I wanted to watch the Japanese remake. I just, at this point in my life, I don't have the time to throw in extra movies. <laughs> the in, movie poster the for the Japanese remake is uh, a room, but instead of a boot, it's like a Converse sneaker. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we, we shall, I would like to see all these things. So maybe in, maybe 10 years from now, we can revisit Cube the remake or something. So, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I've got three movies. It's October. Screams of Terror that will have you smiling with joy. Hmm. Well, it's going to continue next week. I've got three options here. Option number one, Red Rose from 2002. A group of teenage friends are infiltrated by the Red Rose app, which flourishes on their smartphones and threatens them with dangerous consequences if they don't comply with its demands. Option number two, Maximum Overdrive from 1986. A group of people try to survive when machines start to come alive and become homicidal. Or option number three, Tales from the Crypt presents Bordello of Blood, 1996. The Crypt Keeper returns to tell the story of a funeral parlor that moonlights as a vampire bordello. What's it going to be? You know, I haven't seen Bordello of Blood since like a long time ago, like junior high. And I, I remember I like Darth. I like Dennis Miller's sarcasm. And, and uh, I think this is I think I think Corey Feldman, I think. I, I remember this being fun, and I'm curious in the same way that you were curious to come back and visit Cube. Is this good? I'm I'm a little afraid to say this, but I'm going to go with the bordello of blood here. So that's right, boys and ghouls, come back to the crypt. <laughs> Even as I say it, I'm I'm afraid that should I not pick this and just let it stay in 13 year old Russell's head, but um, we're going to find out. So. The scariest thing that ever yeah. came from Tales of the Crypt for me was I was watching it at a sleepover at a friend's place when Hurricane Andrew came through. That was scary. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all, uh, all of you guys. So this has been fun. And um, thank you, all the Lord's Ladies and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and go towards making the show better for you, the listener. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? Live or die. Make your choice.